Namaste. I have uh, Aditi Banerjee with me, who is well known to you, a uh, friend, uh, somebody who has uh, been on the same journey, the same yagna uh, for a long time, for about 15 years, known her since she was a law student at Yale, uh, you know, a long time back, and been very aligned with my work, and we've been doing many things together. Uh, some time back, I interviewed her, uh, her whole story and, and how we work together. Today, I want to introduce to you Aditi, the author. She has now written her first fiction book. It's going to be a very important book. I'm going to back it and help, help support it. I want to show you the uh, cover. Welcome to my show. Tell us a little bit about this book. Sure. The Mahabharata, the longest epic poem ever told in the history of the world by the immortal Hindu sages of ancient India, gives us the story of Gandhari, one of the most unforgettable figures in world literature. Now it is time to tell the rest of her story. Gandhari, when she found out that she would be married to a blind prince, blindfolded herself permanently so that she would never see that which he could not see, depriving herself of all that had been denied him since birth. Revered throughout the land as the most virtuous and devoted of wives, Gandhari is so powerful that she has pronounced a curse on Krishna, the greatest of the gods, in an act of bitter revenge for the loss of all 100 of her sons in the Great War. Eighteen years have passed after the end of the Great War. Gandhari is now an old woman in exile in the forest with her husband, her sister-in-law, who is also her most bitter rival, and the hermits of an ashram. It is an uneasy existence. Peace eludes Gandhari even as she undertakes more and more severe penance, surrounded by those who are waiting to die for the heavens they believe await them. Gandhari does not know what awaits her in the afterlife. Now only one day and one night is left before Gandhari will die. It is the time of, of her reckoning. She has to come face to face once more with Krishna, the god she has cursed, and with her past, each moment and decision that has led her to this point. Can there be redemption or will there only be regret? Excellent. So this is, a, this is going to be an exciting story. So tell me what inspired you and, and led you to this, write this particular story. Yes, I still remember the first time I saw the Mahabharata on TV and I read the Sri Rajagopalachari's short version of the Mahabharata. And for me, the character who stood out the most was Gandhari. So as a child, I really, I felt she was so ideal. I really idolized her. I thought, what a remarkable woman who made such a sacrifice, who was so, so virtuous and, and did this amazing thing. And, and, and that part of it has, has always stayed with me. So, uh, so this act of blindfolding herself, which we may see differently now, but in the Mahabharata, she, was, she really was the greatest of, of wives. And even Veda Vyasa was, uh, you know, revered her and gave her the boon that she would bear 100 sons. And he did, he did not give such boons to everyone. And uh, even Krishna recognized her greatness. And that's why she had, she had so much spiritual power. She, had a, she, she was able to look upon her son, Duryodhana. And once she removed her blindfold and her gaze fell upon him and he became invincible, except for where the cloth was tied around him and that's where he was struck and, and he had died. So here was a woman who had amazing powers, 
But the tragedy of her life was that in blindfolding herself, she also became metaphorically blind to so many things. And her family became so capable of such, uh, such evil, such horrible deeds, and she became blinder or powerless to, to stop that. And then after the war, she had to live after all of her sons had died. And she had to live and I think deal with the regret and wondering, was there anything she could have done to make things different, to prevent the war, to pretend, prevent her sons from going down this path? So as I became older, I started thinking of, of, about that part of it more, that it's not so black and white, that it's, it's complicated. And, and how would we think of this, this figure, figure now? And for me, I've always just had such a great awe and love and reverence for her. And the Mahabharata doesn't really tell us a lot about the end of her life. We know that a few years, that for uh, 15 years after the war, they lived in Hastinapur with the Pandavas. And how must it have been for her to live with those who had who'd killed her sons, who had, who had defeated her sons, and to live in their palace? And was it humiliating for her? Was it hard for her? And then after that, uh, she and uh, Dhritarashtra and Kunti go off into the forest to retire. And a few years after that, what we're told is there's a forest fire, and they all perish ex except for Sanjaya, the, the charioteer for Dhritarashtra, who comes to tell, tell the story. So I always wondered what happened in that forest. And at the moment of her, of her death, was she, was she at peace? Was there regret? Or, or what, was that, what was that like? And it's really an exploration of that that I've, I've written this story. Very good. So what is, for our viewers, what is her significance in the overall story? In other words, her presence results in what of consequence? When I first started writing it, I thought this is a story about an ancient character, someone who's old-fashioned, someone who did something that we don't see happening a lot nowadays. But then in the process of writing it, what I found is her story actually resonates a lot, I think, with, with women today. Because it's, it's not so much about a woman blindfolding herself, but it's about how we as women, as individuals, as human beings, deal with situations, adversities that come into our lives. And sometimes we, uh, you know, we, we martyr ourselves or we, we make these, these statements or these grand acts as a way of protecting ourselves from, from truths and from, from realities. And when that happens, are there, are there different ways that we could have gone about it? So Gandhari, for example, she was a, a princess, the daughter of, of Subala, and she was a woman of remarkable intelligence and strength. So we have this preconceived notion that our, our heroines are, are meek, obedient women, but they're not like that. If you read the Mahabharata, if you read the Ramayana, our, our heroines are extremely strong characters of very powerful, powerful will. Like there's a story of, of Gandhari, um, she's, she's pregnant, and then she hears that uh, Kunti has born a son. And she is so, um, she's so impatient and frustrated that she, she strikes her belly so hard that she actually de del delivers, uh, she gives birth at that moment. So she was a woman of, of iron will, great intelligence, uh, great strength, and I think that Bhishma may have wanted her to be the bride for Dhritarashtra to bring those gifts to the kingdom, to help him rule, to be a good ruler. But maybe it was the case that when she was in that situation, all she could see was that she was being married off to a blind prince. And then did she, did she hold herself back 
from contributing more, from living up to her full potential. And I don't think there are black and white answers to that, but I think you can recognize the, the immense virtue and greatness of what she did, but also wonder if there were different, uh, if there were different pathways for her and what we can learn from that. So I, I felt as, as I was writing it that I could, so much of her resonated with me. And I'm actually working with a, with a book coach right now, um, an American woman who's never read the Mahabharata, and this is all culturally unfamiliar to her. But she says she feels that this really would re resonate with a lot of women and, and the journeys that, that, we, that we go through. Cool, very nice. So do you feel that the voluntary blindness uh, is a metaphor for uh, self-delusion or wanting to stay out of it, denial, denial of the not wanting to face the world, or a sympathy for the blind spouse? Uh, and do you feel that uh, rather than saying, okay, my partner is blind, so I, I'll also become, I'll downgrade myself and become blind, what if the person had said, I'll be the eyes for both of us? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll, I, I'll compensate for that. Right. You cannot, I mean, you cannot walk, I'll do the walking for you. You cannot see, I'll do the seeing for you. That's sort of a right. compensating. And actually what's interesting is when I started the story, that's what I thought. I thought that the point of the story was to show that she was wrong in blindfolding herself. But then I think what I've heard is that when you write a story, you should be able to surprise yourself and you should learn something from it or else the reader also won't learn something from it. And I think it's not that black and white because I think... There's a lot of feminist literature out there now that says, oh, what Gandhari did was out of spite, and it was a, she was a victim, and she was, you know, this was like her revenge. But I think if that were the case, she would not have had the powers she did have to protect her son, to curse Krishna, to get the boon from Veda Vyasa. So I think there was something in her that was very noble, because she's often referred to as being the most devoted and virtuous of wives. So I think... When she put the blindfold on, maybe there was a part of it that was, that was this emotional response. But I think part of it was her, her greatness and character and having this sympathy for her husband. And I think for me, the question becomes not so much what she should have done at that moment, but all those moments that came afterwards, all those warnings that came of the, the great wrongs that were being done by Duryodhana and her other sons. And remaining blind in the way that matters more by not interfering, by not correcting them, by not um, perhaps you know, standing up for, for Draupadi when she was disrobed in, in, front of the, in front of the court. And I think those moments end up mattering more than when she was blindfolded uh, or, or not. And so I think that more metaphorical being in blindness and being in, in denial and allowing herself to, to be that way was, uh, was, was more to, to, to blame So for the that. visual blindness was a, one aspect of the bigger blindness. Yes. Blindness to understand even things that you don't need eyes, but you knew that's right. going on. Right. You're sort of withdrawing. It's sort of like a voluntary retreat or withdrawal from uh, engagement. Yes. Disengagement. And I think we see this a lot in kind of using spirituality as escapism. And I think we right. see that a lot today, that, oh, if I do, if I spend 15 minutes doing a puja, or if I go to the temple and I just make a prayer, that's it. I don't have to think about dharma or what I'm doing the rest of the day. And we kind of use, you know, like Vedanta R&R or just go to, a, go to a retreat to feel good about ourselves. And then that lets us hide from what we're doing the rest of the time and when the more difficult questions of dharma face us. Right. So in that way, I think it's a story that, uh, that, that has 
resonance and importance for, for all of us in terms of the lessons we can learn. So you can call some of these escapist people the Gandhari yes. <laughs> archetype. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay, that, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Is there a lesson you are wanting to get across? Is there a point you want to make to the women now based on this story? I think for me, it's, it's an homage to Gandhari and to the, to the Mahabharata. And I find nowadays people don't know the stories of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. And I think a lot of uh, young people, Hindus even, if today you say Gandhari, they may not know who you mean, or they may just know that she blindfolded herself. But I think when you read the stories of, you know, not just Gandhari, but uh, Draupadi, Kunti, Satyavati, like for example, I was writing a small scene where Satyavati appears. And she's a very, in some ways, a minor character in the Malapart. But if you think about her life, what a remarkable woman she was. She was the daughter of a fisherman. She was ferrying this very powerful rage, Parasharmuni, across the river when he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to be with her. And he, she was with this very powerful man. But even in that moment, when it was so easy for her to just be you know, be walked over, be in a, a compromising situation. She made her demands that, you know, that, that he also satisfy, satisfy her, that her secrecy, her modesty be protected, that her future be intact. And she won all of these boons for him so that she was on, in a sense, like a level playing field with him. And from that, uh, Veda Vyasa was born, who was such a great person. And then she ended up, you know, she, she ended up being in charge of a kingdom that had no heirs, and she, you know, she she saw through the the protection of the throne of, of Hastinapur uh, by using her her wit and her intelligence and her strength and her 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 beauty. She was a woman of incredible beauty, and even after uh, Shantanu had passed away, there was, uh, you know, there are so many other kings who could have taken over the kingdom, but she protected it for for her heirs. So even that sort of small character that we don't think about much, there's so much strength, so much mm. richness of character there. And what I really wanted to do was not make a lesson because I think the Mahabharata is it's very subtle. I don't think mm. you can make very easy moral lessons out of it. But really just to bring to life these amazing cast of characters and figures that we, that we have, who for me are really real living beings. You know, like mm. Gandhari isn't just some fictional character. Mm. I, I really believe this this presence of her and when I write you know she's she, you know I bow to her before I write Very because good. I really want to be true to her and to show how what difficult situations they went through and how really strong and heroic they were in their own ways um, and so for, for Gandhari for Kunti for Draupadi it's, it's it's so many things that are that are remarkable even just a small instance from Kunti's life as she had these five sons and how easy it would have been for them to become rivals of each other, for them to be like infighting. But she was able to keep them together as a united force. And then when Draupadi came and she was the wife for all of them, and she was a true wife for five, uh, for her five husbands and she honored each of them. Just how much immense strength and character it takes uh, to, be, to be these women. And I think to, to bring that out so we also feel this connection with the heritage that we come from and we take inspiration from them because I find they're inspirational for me and I derive my strength from them. And that, that's really what I wanted to do, so to bring that to life. And then personally, I wanted to try to give Gandhari a, a happy ending because I wanted that for her. Are you able to do that? 
I think so. <laughs> That's a surprise. That's a surprise. We I are, don't give that away. <laughs> we don't give that away. You know, Mahabharata has such a such an amazing narrative, narratives within narratives within narratives, stories, plots, subplots, such so massive. And as you said, not easily uh, turned into was this right or wrong because that's a very that's a binary uh, uh, Aristotelian, uh, mm-hmm. you know, no middle, everything black and white. That that doesn't apply. I mean, things are so complex mm-hmm. that uh, and there's so many levels at which there is an impact. That's right. the real world. Yes. In the real world, you cannot always say was is this right or is that right because it's very complex. Right. Isn't that how it is? Exactly. I mean, it's very. You could say paradoxical. Some people have criticized and said it's ambiguous and it is it is uh, not uh, not giving not moral certainty, but actually it's more realistic. Yes. You feel that way? Absolutely. I think, for example, if you take the story of Pishma, he's this great heroic character, and he makes the sacrifice that uh, when his when his father falls in love with with Satyavati, and Satyavati's father demands that only Satyavati's sons will be heirs to the throne, and Shantanu says, "I cannot do that to my son." But then Bhishma wants to make his father happy, and so he 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 takes the vow of celibacy, so that he will never have a son who will be a rival to the throne. And when you think of that, that that's just such a great heroic act, and that's why he gets this name Bhishma, which means you know terrible. He's taken on this terrible vow, and he's such a powerful figure for the entire story. So we admire that. But then I think the Mahabharata also tells us, but was that the right decision? Because in doing that, he put. He put his father's interests above the interests of the kingdom, and as the crown prince of the kingdom, his his first duty was to ensure the continuity of of the dynasty. And then the Mahabharata, the war itself, would not have taken place had Pishma become, you know, possibly been the heir to the throne. So the Mahabharata, I think, asks you to question these great. Mm-hmm. Individual sacrifices that we make for, you know, even for very noble causes, for or his what, father's or, or what seems to be righteous action, right. question it. Yes. There's more, more moving parts. Yes. Uh, the the chessboard is not uh, two dimensional. Right. It's like you move this piece, and on this level it does something, but there are many levels on which it does other things. And I think it teaches us humility because yeah. we can only see our little karma. Right. We can't see all the strands of karma that are out there. Only Krishna can see that. Yeah. So I think the Mahabharata teaches us that humility and that not everything is black and white, even such a wonderful, noble act had so many unforeseen consequences. And that doesn't mean Pishma wasn't a great character, a great person. Do you person. feel that uh, there's another meaning, a deeper meaning, that an action has so many consequences, mm-hmm. may, some are good, some are not good, and also it depends on whose point of view, mm-hmm. uh, that, that this, is the, this is the nature of causation. Hmm. I mean, now in physics, that the the this, the idea uh, is is being abandoned that uh, a cause has an effect, and it's a very simple cause causing this effect, like the classical physics. Right. That this cause has lots of consequences. It's a whole network. Yeah. And some of those things will happen long time later, like. Uh, karma later mm-hmm. sort of thing and so you cannot work out all you cannot work out and isolate the effect of a cause because it's a whole ecosystem of yes. a whole jungle a whole cosmos of effects going on and these are not isolated you cannot isolate a cause and an effect because it's the whole thing together right do you think that uh, mahabharat story is also trying to kind of hint us at that that you cannot isolate that somebody did this and it was it, this is the effect because not too isolated. That's such an excellent point because I think that's the underlying ethics of the Mahabharata mm. in a sense that everything is so interconnected, interdependent, 
And all of this is taking place and you know, the story of the Mahabharata is being recited in the context of this great snake sacrifice where so many snakes are being sacrificed. And, and I think what the Mahabharata says is there's always this, uh, in, in samsara, there's always this, this violence and there's always this cause and reaction and that everything is, is connected. And every time you take an action, you have to think about this, you know, this, this, this has so much impact beyond what I, can even, what I can even think of. So if a physicist thinks that he's got his arms around all the things, all the effects, uh, the message is that, they, that you've left out things there's more than you right. figured out. Right. And if an ethicist says, I've looked at all the ethical consequences, all the ethical consequences of what you're going to be doing, even a simple act, actually hasn't looked at enough. Right. So there's more in the cosmos than you can get your arms around. That's sort of an idea. Yes, and that's why I think dharma is so much richer and more multifaceted than just morality or right and wrong, or right. they have a, a list of commandments. You can never have that a, cannot, these commandments and right. say, do this, that, and you know, don't right. do this and do that. Right. Mahabharata says, just no way. Yes. You cannot uh, make it so simple. Right. <laughs> you have their, their networks of rule, rights and responsibilities, and when one precedes another, it becomes very subtle and... And it's, it's, there's always a trade-off, I think there's always So do you feel that this uh, understanding of righteousness also has to do with the person's own state of consciousness? Mm-hmm. That one person will say this is right, right, you know, after calculating all the ramifications. Uh, but another person would come up with a different result because they are looking at it from a higher plane. Yes, absolutely. So I think you have... Um, like in the, in the Mahabharata, there's a there's a, a quote that that repeats a few times that says, uh, "For the sake of a family, an individual can be sacrificed. For the sake of the community, the family can be sacrificed. For the sake of the nation, a village can be sacrificed. Uh, and then for the sake of the soul, the entire world should be sacrificed." So I think you have the sense of dharma as you know that there is a an, an ordering of of what is required when, and it's it's shifting and it's changing. And then I think this uh, the sense of the greater of the greater good or the you know the cosmological order that you're trying to preserve. So it's harmony for everyone, for people you cannot see for you know lifetimes ahead, and that's what you're trying to preserve. It's like this balance between the between the forces, this cosmological order, and then the sense of being connected to to all of it, like you have in your book Indra's Net. So it's really, they, they see the cosmos like this, where everyone is connected to everyone, and everyone is really a manifestation and a, a reflection of someone else, and all of that is really a reflection of, of Brahman. Right. So I think you have all of these layers of meaning and philosophy just permeating the entire model. So we could never make a finite list of rules right. and put in a computer to figure out, to adjudicate whether to do this act or not in an absolute sense, because okay. it's so contextual. Yes. I mean, that's really what we're... And so chasing these things around and discussing them and understanding different stories is a way to help the individual come to terms with this fact. Right. That's very fascinating. Yeah, this notion of swadharma, or that the dharma for a particular individual at a particular time will be different from from another individual. Somebody else's swadharma. And even the Gita, which is such a foundational text for us, but the Gita arose in this dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna at a particular point of time in Arjuna's life. But you know, 10 years later, that, res- that dialogue itself may have been different, or the instruction to Arjuna may have been different, depending on where Arjuna So was. my guru used to say to people that you should understand the Bhagavad Gita as Arjuna's Gita hmm. and try to develop 
your Gita with mm -hmm. the help of your Guru. Means yeah. my job is to develop Rajiv's Gita, yes. interacting with my Guru the way Arjun did with his. Yes. So I have to really explain my dilemmas, my issues, my problems, traumas, what I'm going through, all the doubts, come back and keep discussing, debating, arguing until I have figured out my Swadharma. Hmm. And, every, and the Guru used to say, every one of you is supposed to do that. Right. It's not memorizing what was right for that guy. Yes, it, It's so different than biblical thought or any uh, uh, Abrahamic systems, which is kind of a canonized, critical edition, standardized, that this came from God, this happened, and so that's it, and now all of you do that. Right. It's right. very amazing kind of thing. It, it brings to mind, I, I actually, uh, I was at a, a workshop on the, the Mahabharata in, in Delhi uh, by Vishwadluri and, and Joydi Bhakti, and an interesting point came up, so we were talking about how the Mahabharata has evolved as a text over, over time. And, you know, with, with the Vedas are very strict rules of transmission that you can't even change the pronunciation of a, of a syllable because that will distort the meaning. Uh, and then I was asking what happens with the Mahabharata, the Itihasa and the Puranas, are the, are the rules as strict? And what they said is, you know, the, the, the way the Mahabharata came to us, it was, it was preserved over generations by scribes. And each scribe would have a particular sarga or parva that they were responsible for. And they would memorize it, they would preserve it, and they would, they would pass it on. And then they would sometimes come across other manuscripts. And those manuscripts may have uh, additional lines that were not in the scripts that they were using. And what would happen is they would not um, they would not get rid of those lines. They would keep those in the margins. So you had like the canonical text, but you would also include every other single line that you found because that line may have been divinely inspired mm. or it may have been part of the original and you couldn't know. But the basic rule was the glorification of the divine. So if there was a line in there that was somehow glorifying Krishna, then it's worth preserving that because our, our tradition is really about is about Like about hypertext. That. Yes. And maybe that'll take you somewhere else. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, very good point. So, uh, uh, one of the things I want to uh, discuss is Gandhar, the region, is now Afghanistan. Uh, pa Pakistan, Afghanistan. Pa Pakistan, Afghanistan. Yes. I think people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that. I wrote an article when, uh, uh, the, the, after 9-11 when the U.S. forces uh, invaded Afghanistan. And then the Kandahar, the town Kandahar, was a big battle mm -hmm. and a big base, military base. And uh, so everybody was talking about Kandahar. So I, I wrote an article how Gandhar became Kandahar. Mm. That actually, it, not just the town, but the whole region was called Gandhar. Mm -hmm. and Gandhari came from there. Mm -hmm. That's why she's called Gandhari. Mm -hmm. So there is also uh, a lot about uh, some of the people in the, some of the characters in our old texts are named after some place. Yes. So you can also plot the huge geography across which these right. people... So, you know, when people talk about there was no unified India and all that, the point is that they are referring to somebody who came from Afghanistan or what is now called Afghanistan. Somebody else came from another place thousands of miles away yes. and they go on a pilgrimage which is somewhere here or somewhere there. So, the unity of that region is there in the texts. Yes. It may not have this name of a political boundary, but in terms of the consciousness of pe in the minds of people, this is a unified civilization, Absolutely. in that, that sense. That's very important. Actually, you know, there's a story of Balaram when he goes on pilgrimage after a certain point in the, in the Mahabharata. He goes all around um, Bharata, what we consider India nowadays. And each kingdom had a role to play in the Mahabharata war. So even in the, the deep south, there are some states that say, 
you know, in our history, our king was the one who supplied the food to both sides, the Kauravas and the Pandavas. So that's how strong, strongly rooted our identity is in the civilization of, of Bharat and in the Mahabharat, that each, each region, each ethnicity, even beyond the boundaries of what we call India today, had this connection uh, and had this shared sense of history and civilization with each other. So now I want to discuss uh, uh, when your book comes out, uh, you, have, uh, you are giving it a lot of your interpretation. Some people will say, how is this different from Devdat Patnaik, who in the, in the pretext of uh, taking his own liberty, his own poetic interpretation, liberties, uh, the rights of an author, freedom of speech, all that. Under that guise, uh, he's also distorted a whole lot of mm -hmm. things. He's, he's turned this into what he calls myths, and he's uh, put a lot of uh, Wendy Doniger stuff and Sheldon Pollock kind of spins on it. Uh, started looking at it as sort of social, political, human rights issues with his own agendas. So how would your uh, uh, creativity with the text differ from uh, Devdat Patnaik's? So this is something I do struggle and, and wrestle with because the Mahabharata for me, it's not just some epic poem. It's, it's sacred literature. You see it as sacred. I, I see it and as sacred That's a big literature. difference from Devdat Patnaik right there because he sees it as myth. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for me, I don't want to alter the meaning of the Mahabharata or alter the, the, you know, the, the characters in any way. For me, my, my biggest aim with the book would be if people would go back to the original and read it. Good. Because right now, the Mahabharata is just languishing from, from neglect. There are manuscripts that are decaying away because no one is bothering to publish them because there's no interest. There are so many traditional commentaries on the Mahabharata from hundreds, thousands of years ago. Uh, and only, I think, Nilkant's uh, commentary has actually been published. By published, I mean there are palm leaf manuscripts that haven't been digitized. In a matter of years, they'll be gone. Because there's no interest in the Mahabharata. We can, you know, and, and so for me, what I want to do is, 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 is for people to go back to the original and, and to read it. And I do not presume that I have any commentary on the Mahabharata or to, or to give a gloss to it. So I just bow down before it. This is a story that I want to tell, not because I think it's a, it would alter the Mahabharata or there's an improvement on it or anything. It's just something between the lines uh, that I'd like to tell without disturbing the, the original. So the, the original as interpreted, as tradition sees it, predominates. Yes. And, and so uh, you are basically adding value in the sense of making it accessible to modern people so that they'll get sufficiently interested and want to go back and read the original. Yes. That's where, you're, so you're yes. not replacing the original, which is a huge difference from Devdar Patnaik because he says that the uh, traditional interpretation got it wrong. Right. And he's fixing it. Right. And so in a sense, he's an invader. He's yes. kind of invading the Mahabharata and the whole, all the itihas he's invading. Right. Uh, back to the book invading the sacred. I mean, he's invading the sacred yes, in, this, exactly. in this sense. And he's changing it to suit his preferences. So yes. if he doesn't like something, oh, ashramida yagya, it shouldn't be that, it should mean this. And right. he's changing it to suit his preferences. Right. Whereas for me, you know, the Mahabharata stands on its, on its own. And if inadvertently I had distorted meaning through my misunderstanding, 
then I would consider that a big mistake. So right. even when I'm writing this, I'm I'm I'll, I'm running it past my gurus, past others to make sure that it's still it's Very still good. intact. The main difference with Devdat Patnaik is that he presents himself as a nonfiction author. In other words, his suppositions, his interpretations are not in the realm of fiction, but they are actually meant to be true to what he what the what the Mahabharat, what the what our sacred tradition is. And and that's why Therefore, a, a higher degree of scrutiny of his, his rigor and his scholarship is warranted. So he, his work, he would like it to be taught in a, in a school or a college as part of a course on um, uh, understanding what the Mahabharata says. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to the original interpretation, his, he's not calling it fiction. He's right. calling it uh, the truth. Yes. That's the truth. Yes. And according to him, the truth is that the Mahabharata is a myth. So right. that's what he's, how he's presenting it. Yes. And that's a really sad thing that that such books become bestsellers and you see them all over in airports and Reliance is supporting him. Right. Yeah. Uh, but some people tell me they're having doubts now because of public response. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. so many people I know who, uh, because it's sometimes hard to find good English translations, but they do actually rely on Devdat Patnaik's books to tell them what the tradition is or to learn about Hinduism from him yeah. and, and therefore and a lot of people are very dangerous. grateful to him that yeah. he's bringing it to their attention and they had no other way of understanding it okay. and they also Devdar Patnaik also the production value is very high nice graphics and cartoons yes. and gra animation and all that stuff and with that comes I think uh, a, high, a higher sense of responsibility which he should have yeah. to be faithful to the and, and I think the uh, he should present it as hey this is fiction it's not necessarily what the Mahabharata is about yes. but I'm, I'm giving you kind of a fictionalized entertainment kind of version and it should be put in that section of the bookstore right. uh, and, and it should not be patronized by some one of the largest you know corporate houses in the world as sort of we are projecting our culture because it is not the truth about our culture yes yeah. so you can't be pushing a political agenda right and so you especially the current agenda right and uh, yeah yeah right and you, the, the starting point has to be Shraddha for the tradition, right. otherwise there is a distortion. And if you're just doing something because you want to push a political agenda based on today's uh, norms, then that's, that's fundamentally you know, dis distorted. And a personal vested interest. Yes. An agenda where he's a player and he's got, he wants this side to win because he gets something out of it. Right. So <laughs> that's not scholarship. Yes. I mean, that's not honesty. Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, I, I think of my story as being kind of like, like fan fiction, <laughs> so I don't, I don't see it as being part of the Mahabharata or, or things like that. It's just taking these, you know, individual figures from that that I have so much reverence for, and just kind of offering my my reverence to them. So tell me about the book itself. When will it be ready and launched, and how are we going to? Because I'd love to be helping you in part of it in any way. So what's your miles, what are the milestones? When is it going to come out? So I've, uh, I, I just have one more chapter to write. So the entire, the, the first draft is almost, is almost done. And what's been nice is I've been working with this, uh, this writing coach along the way. So every week I send her my, my chapters. And she's someone who's never read the, the Mahabharata before. And that's really good for me because there's so many things that we take for granted that people will, will know. But I want to she'll write ask those. questions. She'll ask, yes. okay, what, what did you mean by that? Kind right, of exactly. And so just it's, it's helpful for me because I want to write this for a wider audience who may never have even heard of the Mahabharata. And so, so, so that's been good for me. So as soon as this, this draft is, is done, I'll do some, some revisions and then the manuscript will be ready to go. And I'm, I'm hoping to have it published. Soon. Yes, soon. Well, good luck to you. 
and uh, when it comes out, we'll do some more. And also uh, have you back for a conversation on uh, Devdat Patnaik and whatever you want to, whatever are your thoughts on that. I mean, a lot of people have written about him and uh, he's become an active, he's become an important figure to evaluate mm -hmm. in, our, in our culture. So we'll have you back. And thank you so much for coming and wish you all the best for your book. Thank you so much. It's great being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Namaste. To help me, you can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. If you're in a foreign country like in the US or somewhere, you can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.